This is They Create Worlds, episode 199, The History of Handheld Games, part 2. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. For some of you, you've had to wait two weeks. For others of you, you've had to wait about 40 minutes. In either case, welcome back to part two of our look at handheld video games in their entirety. We're past all that stuff with calculators and little vacuum tubes and primitive LEDs and blinky lights. And we can get on to the cool stuff with Gumpei Yokoi and so on. That's right. We are still right in the middle of our live stream, as we do once a year. We are continuing our look at the birth, growth, and slow death of the handheld games industry. For those of you that uh, don't remember last time, we focused on that kind of first flowering of the whole thing, talked about the background in calculators, moved on through the handhelds by companies like Mattel, then on to the VFD tabletop games in the early 1980s, ending with that bizarre LED adventure vision thing. Now we get to turn our attention to the other category of handheld games besides LED and LCD games. We talked last time about the LED games, the VFD games, and now we have to close the loop with the persistent category that continues to exist all the way through. That is, of course, games of the LCD variety which first came into being during this first handheld period that we already talked about, but then extend way beyond in products like the Game Boy and the Game Gear and so on. First of all, we have to do that thing where we get as technical as we dare and describe a little bit just what the heck an LCD display is, or rather an LCD saying LCD display is saying display twice. I mean, we called us a hair desert which is a desert, so it, we're just saying desert, desert, but okay, yeah, sure, whatever. So LCD does stand for liquid crystal display. The display part of that is quite obvious, but what the heck is a liquid crystal? That is a good question. In general, as you learned in like third grade science, matter is divided into solids, liquids, and gases. Gases we don't have to worry about today because this is not a liquid gas display. But the primary difference between a solid and a liquid is the organization and mutability of their component molecules. Solids have their molecules arrayed in a very rigid pattern and do not change their orientation. Liquids are far more malleable, and the molecules like to move around and take different shapes. This is why jumping into a pool of water doesn't hurt and jumping into a pool of concrete does. Because those molecules do not get out of the way. I beg to differ. If you're going fast enough at the body of water, it's going to feel like concrete. Well, yes, surface tension. But for the purposes of this exercise, like semiconductors, 
Liquid crystals are something that can exist in two different states, essentially, simultaneously. There are certain solids, certain materials, that if you get them to just the right temperature, and it's usually a very narrow temperature range, they remain crystalline in their molecule formation, which means that they kind of keep the same relationship to each other. The molecule chains keep their shape but you can still squish them around a little bit. They'll still move around a little bit. So they're kind of a solid and a liquid at the same time with some of the properties of both. The other thing that's very useful about these liquid crystals is because they maintain something of their structure, they can be manipulated in predictable ways. If you send a current through a liquid crystal, you can cause that liquid crystal, it'll change the shape of the crystal, but it'll do so in a predictable and consistent fashion. So that's a liquid crystal. They were first discovered in 1888, but liquid crystal displays came along a lot later, as I said, in the 1960s. What was basically discovered is if you take two pieces of glass, that are polarized, which means they block some light, and put them perpendicular to each other. I don't know all the science behind it, but you basically create a situation where it is theoretically possible to block the light, completely block the light, passing through these two pieces of polarized glass if you have solids in the right place. Then you have a set of liquid crystal material, normally in a, uh, in a twisted pattern, that when you put a current of electricity through it, causes them to untwist and therefore change their orientation relative to the polarized glass and block light from passing through both of those glass panels. The practical effect of this is that you get a black blob in the place where light is no longer passing through. Then when you remove the charge, the liquid crystal retwists, the orientation changes, and light can get through the glass there again, and so you get the background, which is usually gray. In some very early displays, it was kind of greenish-yellow, but usually the polarized glass, because it's partially blocking light already by virtue of being polarized, gives a gray color. Basically, by exciting liquid crystals in particular parts of your glass— you can create basic blobs or shapes. And if you have an advanced enough system, you can even make those blobs so tiny that they're the size of pixels, and then you can do basically a full image, just like a raster display, essentially. Though the early systems did not operate in that way, because that's a lot. LCDs, the first one I do believe was 1968 at RCA. It was sometime in the 60s at least. It was continually refined after that. And it was particularly used by the calculator companies as the uh, handheld calculators came into vogue because they were a lot less energy intensive, obviously, than VFDs and Nixie tubes, and even less energy intensive than an LED as well, which itself is very low power, because there is no light involved with LCD. It's the blocking of light. It doesn't generate its own light. It blocks light. So some of the leading companies came to be some of these calculator companies, especially the Japanese ones like Sharp. Sharp became one of the very big companies in LCDs. That's why we spent time on Sharp last episode, and that's why they're going to become important later. 
As with VFD displays and other displays, early LCDs were not very big. They were initially not practical for anything outside of really small displays like calculator displays. The reason for that is you had to activate each line individually and then deactivate as you went along. So your frame rate was really low. Right. So what this means is... You know, you activate your first one and whatever you're displaying comes up in the pattern. You activate your second one, you activate your third, you activate your fourth. By the time you get to your fourth, your first one is already starting to disappear because it's been off long enough. In order to refresh the display, in the very early systems, they were all like four column displays, but then you really couldn't do much more than four rows. And even getting down to that fourth row was getting to be a bit of a stretch. So it was fine for a calculator readout, because that's a really small readout, but it wasn't very practical for, say, handheld games, which is why most of the early games were LED or VFD. There was one individual, however, that became very intrigued in how to solve this problem for LCDs, and that was an individual by the name of J. Smith III. Funny story, my father's name is J. Smith, but it is not this J. Smith. Having that Smith name as your last name means that you run into this kind of thing all the time. But there is a a J. Smith involved in this video game thing. He came through Mattel, and before Mattel, he came through the aerospace industry, worked for TRW. Again, this concentration in Southern California of electronic toy people And sophisticated toy researchers is not a coincidence because they moved from aerospace industry into Mattel and then out into the larger world. And Jay Smith was one of those who worked at TRW, kind of got sick of the humongous teams. He was there right in the middle of the moonshot. You know, you had hundreds and hundreds of people trying to solve dozens and dozens of problems. And You never really got a sense, or at least Jay never got much of a sense of accomplishment out of that. It never felt like he could see what his contribution was actually doing. It was just too massive. He wanted to get in a field where he felt like he could see himself making a difference, which is why he ended up at Mattel working for Jack Ryan, also out of aerospace, and did some projects there, including some uh, projects involved electronics. Ended up setting out on his own and finally landed on uh, two companies that he founded that kind of worked symbiotically together, Western Design and Smith Engineering. The difference between the two has always been kind of murky, even to the people that worked there. He did explain the difference to Ethan Johnson, friend of the show. It basically had to do with the way that their IP was exploited. One of the companies was kind of based around exploiting patent rights, and the other one was more around royalties on designs, is kind of how that split off, I believe. Ethan can, in chat here, can correct me if I if got that a little wrong. There were these twin companies, Western Design, Smith Engineering. He hired in people, and he was still fully focused on toys and games. Not just electronics, but of course, with the background in electronics, that was one area they were naturally in. Of course, he saw the Mattel handhelds come out and all of this stuff as well, and he got intrigued in that. He actually had a guy that was doing LCD work for Hughes Aircraft, another one of those Southern California aerospace companies. Because of that, his company was able to get very familiar with LCDs. 
So they had a really uh, greater understanding of LCD. And so he put himself to the problem of how can we make a practical LCD display for a game? Because that's some place where we could distinguish ourselves amongst these games that are coming out. And of course, you already have the calculator industry using LCDs. You already know that this is a thing and, and other readouts, you know, as well. So they get to work and he figures out a way to create a 16-column display by developing a more complex LCD driver that behaves more like a raster scan. You're still not scanning the whole screen top to bottom, going back to the top, top to bottom, but he comes up with a system that's able to quickly turn on an entire scan line at once instead of having to turn on all of these individual dots in like a matrix. What this means is you can get a little more action going on on the screen before such time as things start to shut off. He still can't fill a 16-column display at the same time. That's still beyond the refresh rate. But he figures he can focus on games where you don't need things active on the entire screen all the time. You just need to have a total playfield available, but you don't have to have it filled. He looks to some of the arcade games that have been big at the time, games like Breakout and Space Invaders, and decides that these would be absolutely perfect because you have an array of things at the top of the screen that stay pretty static. You have your guy at the bottom of the screen doing what it's doing, and then you just have your projectiles moving in between. So you're not having to refresh every single line of this 16 row, I meant to say, display, not column. It's four columns, 16 rows of this 16 row display all the time. That makes it practical to have this larger screen. His team develops this, and he also decides that the other interesting thing that they can borrow from what's going on in video games is that they can take advantage of this to create a system with interchangeable games. Up to this point, all of the handheld games have been dedicated, just like the early dedicated consoles, where there are games baked into the system. There might be multiple options within the system, but they're all in the system, and there's absolutely no way to add any other games to it. He decides it's a great chance to do interchangeability, and he decides he's going to do the same thing that the video game industry has done and create a master control unit with a CPU and ROM cartridges with uh, ROM memory. But then a funny thing happened on the way to that plan. When they started looking at the cost of things, memory was really expensive at that time. This is something that affected the video game companies, too. All of Atari's early games were 2K. They finally went up to 4K, and they were very reluctant to ever do 8K cartridges. The reason for that is that memory was just darn expensive. In the case of something like a video game console, you still have to use the memory, because your games are complex enough that you need that extra storage. Since these handheld games are simpler kind of games... Jay theorizes that they really don't need that much memory to store the kinds of games they're making, and that the small amount of onboard memory on the processor itself is probably going to be sufficient to do our games. Because remember, I mean, you know, the original Mattel handhelds, you know, the first one was done on a little 4K calculator chip, which had very little onboard memory. The memory, or 4-bit calculator chip, sorry, I'm not talking memory size. I am talking memory size. I'm not talking memory capacity. But uh, 4-bit, we're not talking about games that are that much more sophisticated that are going to be on this microvision. 
So a microprocessor with just a small amount of onboard memory is much cheaper than a ROM memory chip. What they decide to do is rather than have a CPU in the base unit and have ROM cartridges, the same model that consoles are using at this time, they decide that they're going to just put a CPU on every single cartridge. But then they don't have to put more ROM memory on. They're just going to use the onboard memory on the CPU to uh, do the thing. Then I do think the system has a little ROM memory in it so that it can store whatever basic stuff it needs to drive the display. Yes, it was a microcontroller. That is correct. Microprocessors and microcontrollers, Ethan just mentioned this, microprocessors and microcontrollers are essentially the same thing. All microcontrollers are microprocessors, just not all microprocessors are microcontrollers. That's a designation that's usually given to a microprocessor that has a little more onboard memory than your typical microprocessor does. It's meant to be a slightly more self-contained system than just a microprocessor, though in effect, it's, it's more of a marketing distinction than anything else, I think. Point of clarification. You're saying that the cartridges have the chip on it with a little bit of CPU and a little bit of memory. Yes. I take it there is also a processor and memory on the central quote-unquote console. No, there's no processor needed. There's a driver for the display, Mm -hmm. and there's a small amount of memory, but there is no microprocessor in the base unit. The CPU is in each cartridge because that's cheaper than putting more ROM in there. Which is just funny to think of, because you usually think you put the CPU in the controller itself, or in the central console itself. Yep, they used two microcontrollers. They used a Texas Instruments and an Intel in there, working together. Between them, it it looks like, according to what Ethan's saying in the chat, looks like there was about 3K total of memory available through that. That is how they did it, a very unique approach, but it was actually more cost-effective to do it that way. (laughs) Ha ha! Yes, uh, as Dale says, the Department of Corrections real-time. So uh, Carl in Video Game Newsroom Time Machine, Ethan, uh, collaborates by supplying corrections to the previous episode, the next episode. We uh, are not good communists here at They Create Worlds. We uh, refuse to engage in self-criticism. So uh, (laughs) he does not provide the same service for us, but he does keep things honest. Right, yeah, exactly. They, They had a chip on there to be a display driver. Okay, yeah, so it was just one. Yeah, it was just the Texas Instruments chip on the cartridge. There was an Intel microcontroller on the board, but it only drove the display. It didn't provide any CPU functions. It just ran the display. The CPU functions were on the cartridge. The display driver was on the hardware. In effect, after that, we have a central unit that runs a display that is controlled by a CPU and a little bit of memory. And its primary function is I get some sort of thing I am going to display. I am driving the LCD. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then I have these cartridges that are coming in. They have the game. They run all the calculations on there, whatever logic's going on. They effectively run the CPU and everything else and then hands off whatever's going to be displayed to the other processor on the central unit. Yeah, probably. Okay. Sounds good enough for me. All right. Both of these chips were microcontrollers, which is a specific type of microprocessor that has more memory on it than your typical standalone microprocessor. Though, like I said, it's more of a marketing category distinction than a function distinction. That's how it all works. We got it. We got there with a little help from our friends, with our friends of the show. 
he completes this. He takes it to Milton Bradley. Milton Bradley's interested because by this time, 1978, the toy companies are becoming very interested in this electronic space. It's becoming much more sophisticated. The companies are becoming more sophisticated, and they're looking into things. So Milton Bradley wants to get involved. They know some of their competitors are getting involved. Milton Bradley has already been involved in a small way. A designer by the name of Lane Houck, much more well-known, if he's known at all, for his work at Gremlin Industries, creating such games as Blockade and Head On, was a real technophile, and just because he could in his spare time, created a version of the board game Mastermind that was an electronic game, and he sold that to Milton Bradley, which released it as Comp 4. I've talked to the general manager of Milton Bradley during this time period, Michael Moon, who went on to Atari to be the president of their consumer division. As he put it, Milton Bradley wanted to take a very cautious approach to electronics in the beginning. They saw this as a category that they should get into, but they didn't want to dive in head first. And so they started by doing board game adaptations. They started with Comp 4, which was a big hit, and Electronic Battleship, which I believe they still sell today. Of course, the Battleship game already existed. This was adding the voices to it. After they got comfortable with that, they started additional R&D projects around electronic games. So they were ready to move beyond those basic things like Comp 4 and do a more elaborate system. They were actually working on a video game console at the time. They never saw the light of day. They were working very closely with TI on that. So the idea of doing this handheld electronic also intrigued them, and they bought the concept. Unfortunately, there is one thing that did not intrigue them, and that was licenses. They were not a fan of licenses. Jay Smith thought the perfect game to package with the Microvision was the new Space Invaders, because it was all the rage in the arcades, as everyone knew, and it worked perfectly with his system, because like Breakout, you had the blobs at the top, thing at the bottom, and you just needed to keep track of the bullet. Milton Bradley said, no, we are not going to do a license. So that didn't happen. Now, it still had a breakout game that chipped with it, Blockbuster, and they did their version of a shooting game, Star Trek Phaser Strike, which is not a Space Invaders clone, but at least it's the same general idea of shooting at things. Most of their games were based on things like that. They did a pinball game, they did a bowling game. Most of it was about mostly static objects at the top of the screen, something you're controlling at the bottom of the screen, and then your projectiles in between, because that's really what the hardware could handle, because it was a grid of dots. If you have a microvision that's turned off and hasn't screen rotted, you can see all of the individual squares of the display. They're kind of translucent on there. You can see them even when it's in an off state. It was kind of limited in its gameplay in that way, but they released that in 79. Milton Bradley did. It did fine. I don't have sales figures, but it did okay. Jay Smith was starting to move on to try to do a Microvision 2, which was going to be color. He was experimenting with how to figure out color LCDs, which are a bit of a thorny problem. That never sees the light of day, though, because things go south and it's a whole problem. Jay Smith did some other things as well. His company did some game watches because there was a brief movement to put games onto digital watches using LCDs. We don't really have time to delve into that. We may do a more detailed profile of Jay Smith's company at some point in the future, in which case we can talk all about that, but not right now. The Microvision would just be a footnote. Uh, it was on the market for a very small period of time. It didn't get a lot of traction. 
It would have just been entirely a footnote in this history if it wasn't for the fact that one person who managed to get their hands on one was a Japanese engineer by the name of Satoru Okada. Satoru Okada is basically, until quite recently, the unsung hero of Nintendo. When he was at Nintendo, he was often very much in the background. He's not somebody that people knew, and so credit for a lot of things that he did went to other people instead, like, say, Gunpei Yokoi, who, as we're going to see as this episode goes on, probably doesn't really deserve that title, father of the Game Boy, that people like to give him. Does that mean we need to scrap that episode about Gunpei Yokoi? Eh, maybe some of it, I don't know. Some of the stuff I already knew, I think, by the time we did that episode, but I don't remember what we said. It was a long time ago. It was nowhere near episode 199, that's for sure. (laughs) But after Okada retired from Nintendo, he no longer gave any you-know-whats, and now he'll dish on anything, anyone, anytime. So he'll talk all about all of Nintendo's secrets. People keeping up with the newer history that's come around in the last kind of decade and a half are more familiar with this story. But if you're still going off of of the old days, the Kents and the Chefs of the world, definitely a name that doesn't come up. He graduated high school in 1966. He had a keen interest in electronics, matriculated to Osaka Industrial University. Like many of Nintendo's early engineers, he is from the south of the main island the whole Kyoto-Osaka belt of the island. After graduation, he did very well in school. He thought after graduation he would be going to one of the top electronics companies in the Osaka region by the name of Matsuo Denki, and then he failed the test. Not the test. Anything but the test. He failed the employment test, and he couldn't get in. He was sure he was getting in. All of his professors told him he was getting in. He was one of the brightest electronic students in his class. There was no doubt he was going to get into the company. So he had not bothered to schedule any interviews with other companies. And now he basically just needed a job, any job. But you see, the entire recruitment process is very formal in Japan, especially at this time, because Japan operated on this idea of lifetime employment. You didn't just go around and check the want ads and see who was hiring. You know, maybe if you're working in a supermarket, you do. But to get an actual profession, you don't do that because jobs don't open like that. In your senior year of college, you decide the companies you're going to interview with. You go in, you interview with those companies, you take their employment tests. Then they select all of the people they're going to hire for that year from the people who take the test, and then they all start in the company at the same time. And they're kind of a cohort. You know, they're, they're everybody, they're each other's senpais. The kind of hierarchy of seniority and all of this is all very real. When you join a company, it's a big deal. Yeah, co- there we go. Yeah, kohai. There, there we go. Thank you, uh, Ethan, for the term. Yeah, you're kohai. You don't just go up to a company at the last minute and say, I would like to do your test. Or I would like to interview for your company because they decide that they're going to test a certain number and then they decide to hire from a certain number. So that's all done. Theoretically, you might be able to find a company that's less prestigious or less well-known that hasn't filled all their test slots and maybe you can sneak in at the last minute. That's actually how Hideki Sato got into Sega. 
because he thought he was going to go on an overseas English enrichment program after he graduated college and so didn't take any tests. But in general, at the last minute, you're out of luck. But it just so happened that he had a friend who was going to test at Nintendo and then changed his mind. He was pulling out, so there was going to be an empty slot. So he took over the slot. He arrived late, also a major sin, with only about 20 minutes left in the exam. Japan is very rigid. They're not going to say, oh, that's fine. We'll stay a little longer for you to finish. It's like, no, we had a starting time. We have an ending time. You're welcome to come in and take the test. We're not going to stop you, but you got to get it done in 20 minutes. You only have 20 minutes. So he did it. But remember, he's actually really good at this stuff. It was actually, you know, to him, it was not very complicated. So he got it done. That was the written portion. Then the physical challenge was welding. Because remember, at this time, they're creating a lot of products that involve some heavy manufacture. And he was actually also very into that. He'd been welding since he was a kid. So he was good at that, too. He got in there and he got hired, and he was basically the first person with much in the way of electronics knowledge at the company. Yokoi had some knowledge. He did have an electrical engineering degree, but the field was changing so rapidly in this time period that Yokoi's knowledge was already obsolete. So Okada was kind of the guy when he joined the company in 1969. He was put in Gunpei Yokoi's division, which was just starting to explore electronic products. He contributed to the Beam Guns. You can see our trio of Nintendo episodes on uh, Nintendo Before Video Games to get more information on that. Then continued to be in R&D 1 as kind of Yokoi's right-hand man after that. Flash forward then to 1979. At this time, the balance of power has really shifted within the company. Hiroshi Yamauchi is very well known for the fact that he would pit his engineers against each other in competition to try and get the best results. There had been just one R&D division at Nintendo until 1979. At that time, it was split in two. R&D 1, which remained with Yokoi, where Okada was, and R&D 2, which was placed under Masayuki Uemura. The level of staffing and the level of support that these divisions would get was entirely dependent on their success, how good a job they were doing. It's not like they had two departments that were like equally staffed with engineers or had fixed quotas of this department's going to have this many engineers, this, many de- this department's going to have this many engineers. No. Put out a good product, a hit product, and engineers are going to join your team to create more hit products. Put out a flop, and everyone's going to move over to the other team where the action is. The competition was real. The animosity was real. Yokoi and Uemura came to not like each other at all. It wasn't just professional competition. It got personal between these R&D divisions, and uh, Yamauchi delighted in kind of stoking this. He felt it got the best out of his engineers. By 1979, Uemura is the one that's really ascendant because he's been doing the majority of their video game stuff. The color TV games, the home stuff, and then the arcade games. Nintendo is not in any way a household name in video games yet. This is pre-Donkey Kong. But still, that's the part of the company that's doing well. Yokoi is a very different kind of talent. He is very creative. 
but his specialty is creating wonder and delight through simple things. Now, there's nothing wrong with that at all, but he likes to keep his concepts simple. Video games are really much more complex than the kind of things that Yokoi likes to work with. He likes little surprises like his Ultra Hand, which extends, or his light beam games where you shoot the photocell and then something exciting happens. That's the kind of stuff that R&D 1 is working on. And their most recent project that they had worked on was kind of a little robot toy vacuum cleaner combination thing. Looks very much like a Roomba that was called the Chiritori. It did not do well. It was a big flop. And because it was a flop, basically everyone moved out of R&D 1 into R&D 2, basically leaving only Yokoi and Okada in R&D 1. So, yeah, that's not good for their future prospects. I'm looking at a video of this thing right now. It does look like a Roomba or a modern vacuum controlled via remote control with this big classic 70s, 80s antenna sticking out of both controller and robot. Absolutely. Things noisy. Really, really noisy. Yeah, it was not a success. At this time, probably because Nintendo was in the past, had a relationship with uh, Milton Bradley, released some of their games in Japan. Though I don't know that's the reason for certain. Okada comes across the microvision. He's very intrigued by the idea of it. He thinks it would be great to make something like it, but with a better screen, because the one thing that he is not impressed about at all is the screen. It's just a bunch of blobs. The screen is very well done for the time, but by virtue of making it an interchangeable system, one where you could have multiple game types, that kind of necessitated that the graphics stay very generic. Because you're activating the display point by point. It's not like a raster system. It's not like a pixel system where individual teeny tiny dots are forming larger images. Each of those spots on that grid, you activate that and it only activates the one way. The way that the liquid crystal goes opaque in that square is how it's going to look. It's not a dot matrix display or not a complex dot matrix display where you have really, really tiny pixels that you can turn into larger images. It was a failing of the system, but it was kind of an unavoidable. So Okada was thinking, why don't we make something like this except with a better screen so we can get some actual interesting gameplay behind this? He starts examining that. He starts studying that. Oh, and the other thing is that they wanted it to fit in a pocket as well. Because the microvision, it's small, but it's not quite that small. This is actually a really interesting cultural thing for Japan specifically. Because unlike in most places in, say, the United States, all Japanese students wear very traditional school uniforms. Those school uniforms have a breast pocket on the coat. So if you have something that fits in a breast pocket, that's a really helpful, useful entertainment device because a child can take it with them on the go. They can have it on the train when they're commuting to school. They can have it between classes. So making something pocket-sized is actually a really big deal, specifically in the Japanese market, even more so than it is in some other markets. So they start trying to figure out how to do that, and he figures out the same thing. The screen is a problem. The screen is low resolution. 
because of that, it's hard to have really good graphics. So it's you really can't make a wide variety of games. So instead, he comes around to the idea of, well, then why don't we make just one game where we can make much more distinctive figures just for that one game and do something like that instead? So this is one of the things that's going on. The other thing that's going on at the same time is that sometime before this, I don't know how long before, but sometime before this, kind of in the same general vicinity, Gunpei Yokoi is taking the train between Tokyo and Osaka, the bullet train. He notices a salaryman just fiddling with a calculator, not doing calculations on it, but just playing around with it. So this got him to thinking... Adults do want entertainment, too. Because remember, this is Japan. Once you grow up and you're a salaryman, you're supposed to be a big, serious man all the time. You don't play games. You can karaoke, but you can't play games. But this got him thinking, you know, adults really do want to play games, too, despite what our social taboos may be. What if we could create a small, discreet game for adults? Something that, if you're looking at it from a distance and not paying too close attention, doesn't necessarily look like you're playing a game. So you can play it on the go without the social stigma or without losing face from playing a game. Now, at this time, he didn't know what that was going to be. But gradually, these two ideas merged. Okada's desire to do something like the Microvision, except more compact and more graphically interesting, and Yokoi's desire to do simple little games for adults merged into the concept of doing a handheld electronic game with an LCD screen that is calculator-sized and so can fit in a pocket. Another decision that they made very on is they decided that the controls had to be very simple and very inobtrusive. Basically, it had to be something that you could kind of just glance down at, hold close to you, glance down at, and play without moving your hands around very much, because it had to be discreet. It had to be something that did not draw attention to you, the salaryman, who was doing this horrible, horrible thing of playing a game. So that's what led to what's really one of the most revolutionary things that you don't even really think about, and that's the concept of playing video games with your thumbs. The entire reason that they went with a two-button configuration, one button on the left, one button on the right, is so that salarymen could play the game discreetly. Hold it close and play it discreetly. That's the whole reason they had thumb buttons. And of course, this is the beginning, because games at the time, you had joysticks, you would have big number pads, you would have, like, maybe you'd use your thumb on the disc on an Intellivision or something, but then you'd also have, like, side buttons you'd use with other fingers. You had the triggers on the Valley Professional Arcade, you had that rotating thing that the Fairchild Channel F had. Systems weren't built around the idea of playing games basically just using your thumbs. This is really the beginning of that. I'm not going to say definitively there was never a game that you did that with before. I'm sure there probably was some little handheld game that was primarily thumb-based before, because just the nature of holding something means that you're going to prioritize your thumbs. But just as we said in our Doom episode the other week, for those of you who have heard the Doom episode, i.e. not the stream, because it hasn't <laughs> aired yet, we're not so much interested in who did something like this first as opposed to who popularized. And there's no doubt that this is the beginning of the idea of game control, 
game pads primarily with your thumbs. And it comes entirely from this need to make the games very discreet so that you can hide what you're doing, which I just find absolutely fascinating. They decide on a theme called Ball, which is basically a juggler who has to move back and forth with the buttons and stuff to keep balls in the air. So this is all based on graphics essentially drawn right on the screen. So, you know, the liquid crystal material is done in the shapes of the objects, the ball, the person and whatnot. And then the animation is done by having different segments of the screen go opaque at the right times to give the sense of movement and animation. So it's not a raster style display at all. It's all static movement where individual parts of the LCD are activated at the right times to create the animations. Then you have this really simple thing. They decide it's it's going to be three games because they want to have a little variety. It's all going to be based around this ball concept, but they're going to have three games. So as part of this prototype, there's an A, a B, and a C button to select your games. As they continue to develop this thing, they realize they're having trouble coming up with a third game. They have two variants. They can't, for the life of them, think of a third variant. So they change course. They're like, okay, well, what kind of extra feature can we give? You know, it's a C button, because, you know, loan words in Japanese are weird. I don't know if they're aware of C and clock being things that are together or not, so I don't know if that was part of the influence. But they decided that, you know, another thing that's very easy to do with these kind of displays is a clock. You know, digital watches use LCDs. So they decide that the C button, instead of being another game variation, will bring up a clock. They figure this is useful, too, because a clock is something practical. It gives adults permission to buy. Oh, this is just a cool gimmicky clock device that also happens to have a game in it. Totally not buying it for the game. Honest. So they decide to go that route instead. They go to Yamauchi with this concept. He likes the game concept just fine, but he says, absolutely not. You are not putting a clock on this, a watch on this. There was a very simple reason for that, and it was money. Because watches were considered a luxury item in Japan at that time and were subject to an extra 3% tax. So by including a clock, which was in no way required for the game part of it to work, they were raising the cost by 3% for no good reason when most people have wristwatches anyway. So don't do that. Okada and Yokoi were convinced that this was important. They felt that it needed something besides a game as an enticement or as a permission to buy the product. They did not give up on this idea. So what Okada ended up doing is he actually went down to the tax office himself and told them, look, guys, 90% of this thing, they're going to sell it for like 5,800 yen or something like that. Out of this 5,800 yen device, 100 yen is devoted to clock stuff because it's already got the LCD. It's already got the drivers. It's got all of that. Really, the only thing extra is the crystal, the quartz crystal, vibrating crystal to keep the time. We have 100 yen of clock components in here. This is really a game. So you should really only tax us on the components that are needed for the watch part. They were like, okay, fine, we'll just waive the tax altogether. So they agreed to waive the tax and not put the 3% watch tax on the system. So after that, Yamauchi was fine because he didn't care whether there was a clock or not. He just cared about money because, as we know from other Nintendo episodes, Yamauchi is always about... Do the thing better than anyone else and do the thing cheaper than anyone else. 
Little price things like that aren't going to fly with him. Now they need a name for this thing, and it's actually Yamauchi that names it. And it's a very simple name. He says, call it Game and Watch, because it's a game and a watch. Brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? There you go. So they called it Game and Watch. The LCD was done by Sharp. They had to work closely with Sharp to get some of it to work. Round objects weren't really a thing you did with LCDs back then. If you look at Microvision, for instance, everything is very square. At first, Sharp said it was impossible to do round and weren't going to work with them at all. Okada did some of his own prototyping and figured out a way to do this. Another problem they came up with is this was an an LCD of relatively unprecedented size. And a problem that comes up with this glass and the way it does light is uh, something called Newtonian rings. When you have a big enough reflective surface, like on a lens, you end up with this like ring of light that interferes with whatever you're trying to display. This had never been a problem before because there had never been an LCD that was big enough to cause this ring effect to occur. So Yokoi got to thinking, he was like, I bet if we emboss the glass, we can get rid of this little ring problem. Sharp said, okay, that's great, except if you try to emboss that piece of glass, you're going to shatter it into a million pieces. Not going to work. So Yokoi actually went and scavenged around some of the old card-making machines that Nintendo wasn't using anymore, playing cards. Out of some of this old disused equipment, which we may remember from other episodes that he had been hired to maintain, so he knew the equipment very well, he built his own custom embossing machine that embossed the glass delicate enough that it didn't break the glass, but still put on the embossment that prevented these rings from occurring. So a lot of kind of ingenious things went into getting this thing created. Ball releases. You know, they get it done, they name it Game & Watch, they advertise it, it releases in April of 1980, and it is pretty much an immediate success. Adults don't want it at all. This whole idea of games for adults doesn't work. But it turns out that kids really go for it. It sells for 5,800 yen, which is expensive for a toy, but cheap for an electronic toy. They were hoping that they would sell 100,000 units of the first three models they put out, because after Ball, of course, they did a couple of more their first year on the market, and instead they sell 600,000. They sell six times as many as they were expecting in the first year. The sales just keep growing from there. Yamauchi starts demanding more and more Game & Watch devices. As they keep making more, they make them more sophisticated. The first ones were very simple. You had Ball. The second one they created was Vermin, which was kind of a -a whack-a-mole-type game. Whack-a-mole was popular at the time, so they created that. These first few are the so-called Silver Series, because the case was silver. After they realized that these were not going to be a hit with adults, that they were really going to be children's games, they stopped trying to hide that they were games. The second series that they did, they were gold. They're called the Gold Series because of the gold case. They also made the screens larger. In terms of making the games, now that R&D 1 had a hit, R&D 1 started staffing up again. So suddenly there were a bunch of engineers falling all over themselves. And it was a very collaborative process making the games. As described by people that were there, when it came to making game concepts, they would have giant brainstorming sessions, and Yokoi would lead the sessions. And he was the final arbiter. While Father of the Game Boy is probably not a fair thing to call him, Father of the Game and Watch, even though Okada was also involved, is more fair. Yokoi had a lot to do with the creation of the Game and Watch. 
he would lead these brainstorming sessions where people would just throw out ideas and he would be the final arbiter about what sounded good. And then as they'd hone in, he'd kind of focus in and try to refine the ideas. And this is how they would come up with games. One example that Florent Gorge uses in his book on the Game & Watch is the game Octopus, which is one where you're a diver trying to get a treasure while avoiding an octopus that's guarding it. The idea started with, let's do an octopus game. It would be kind of fun. The animated tentacles would be kind of silly and interesting. Okay, so if we have an octopus, how's this going to work? Well, you know, octopus eat fish, so we could either be the octopus trying to catch fish, or we could have you being the fish trying to avoid the octopus. This is all collaborative. What if we are the fish trying to control the octopus? Then Yokoi at that point is like, wait, that makes no sense. Like, he wants there to be some internal logical consistency in his products. He says, that makes no sense, because if you're a fish, and there's a giant octopus there, you're smart enough not to go near the octopus. Why would a fish swim near an octopus? Why does Chewbacca live on Endor with the Ewoks? Doesn't make any sense. What does God need with a starship? So they were like, okay, well then let's make it a diver, and let's have a treasure being guarded. So you have an incentive, like there's something that you've decided is worth risking your life for. So that's how they kind of ended up with the final concept. And then they had an artist that did all the uh, the displays. A designer named Makoto Kano did all of the early displays. And then they would put the games together. They did another string of them, the Gold Series. They continued to be huge, huge hits. In 1982, they sell like 1.6 million units in Japan alone. Yamauchi keeps demanding more. I mean, it's clear they have a winning thing going on. But they have to keep changing them up as well. So then Yamauchi comes up with another idea. This idea does come from Yamauchi. Let's have two screens. Twice the screens. Double the fun. Exactly. The gameplay can only get so complex on one of these screens. So the hope is that by having two screens, you can unlock more complex gameplay and therefore keep people interested that are getting tired of these very basic ones. Yokoi's like, okay, we'll do two screens. And so he decides that in order to have a game on two screens, it should be something that justifies two screens. You don't just want a larger playing area. You don't just want a game like ball, except when you toss the ball up, it goes as high as a second screen. You don't want to be the diver still diving after the octopus. It's just you're diving over a longer period. He wants there to be contrasting action. He figures the best way to create a game like that is something where you have to keep track of things going on on both screens simultaneously. You have to keep switching back and forth between the screens. So he and and the team brainstormed the idea for Oil Panic, which was the first multi-screen game they created. This one involves having to catch oil falling from the ceiling on the top screen, especially catching it before it hits things like fire on the floor that would be very bad, and then take it to the lower screen to dump it out in barrels to dispose of without hitting the customers at this auto shop. So you're having to constantly keep track of where things are on each screen and switch between both screens because your barrel only has a limited capacity as you catch oil on the top screen and dump the oil on the bottom screen. So that's a cute little concept. Everybody likes it. But then they need a second game as well. It's like, okay, Oil Panic's great, Yamauchi says, but what do you have next? At this point, Yokoi is out of ideas. So he decides to look at the company's hit coin-op games, which are a thing at this time now. Even though he doesn't think Donkey Kong really fits the criteria for the kinds of games he wants to see on a two-screen system, He decides it's a huge hit, it's going to sell on the name, and I need a game now because the president's breathing down my neck, so I'll just make Donkey Kong and have it be across two screens. That's fine. 
This, of course, gets into the problem, though, that for the first time, two buttons aren't going to do it because you need to be able to move in all four directions. We've talked about this in, in our Yokoi episode and other places. So for the first time, he's going to need something else. He tries a joystick because a joystick is just how you move at that time. That's how it's done. They try a little joystick. It doesn't work very well. He tries encasing the joystick in some rubbery material, but it has the same problem that the original version of Atari's gotcha had. It made them look like boobs. So that wasn't going to work either. He needed something that the player wouldn't have to look down at constantly because the player is already having to keep track of what's going on on two screens. Looking at what's going on on two screens and looking down at the controls at the same time, that's just way too much. So he decides that he needs a control scheme that's still intuitive enough to be used with just the thumbs and without moving your hand around very much, and that's how he comes up with the idea of the directional cross. Four buttons, up, down, left, right, all slightly sloped so that you know just by feel exactly which one of those buttons you're on, and this will allow easy movement. It's essentially the first D-pad. It's slightly different in configuration, but Yokoi at this point invents the D-pad. You know, a couple years later, when one of his R&D One engineers goes over to help with the creation of the Famicom, the family computer, he borrows that idea from Yokoi's design and goes on the NES, on the family computer, and the rest is history. That is still a Yokoi invention, even though we have more nuance and more understanding now of who did what on some of these things. We still do know that as a Yokoi invention. He really did invent the directional cross, which became the D-pad. That's Game & Watch. I mean, they keep making them for several more years. You know what always strikes me about the Game & Watch? What? Especially the dual monitor one. It just looks so much like a primitive version of the Game Boy DS with the clamshell design. It's very similar. Yeah. Based off of the same design. Well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That design was based off of a makeup compact, which should be no surprise. That's exactly what the industrial designer that was tasked with building the thing looked at, because they needed to keep it compact. So they needed something that folded, and so he looked at uh, women's makeup compacts where you have the powder down below and the mirror up above, the clamshell kind of design, and that's what they used to come up with that. So yeah, that's Game & Watch. They sold them for many more years. There were a few other more advanced variants as well. We won't get into all of that, but they kept making new versions until 1991. They sold over 43 million of them over that time. And this is really the product that put Nintendo on the map entirely. Donkey Kong was a big hit in the arcades, but with consumers, this is what made Nintendo a big, successful company. And you see, part of the reason that Yamauchi was so insistent on having more, more, more is that this period of time, Nintendo was not in good shape. As we talked about in some of our Nintendo episodes, they had put a lot of money and effort into their laser clay ranges that they were going to install in bowling alleys. They put a lot of money into this. And then the oil shock came along, the Arab oil embargo. They lost all of their orders. It completely shuttered the project. And they had amassed a lot of debt to build these things. So Nintendo was very much in debt in this time period. And it was a very scary time period. Game & Watch is really even more than Donkey Kong, is what allowed Nintendo to survive, pay off those loans, and get back on a proper footing as a growing company. Incredibly, incredibly important line of products. Of course, they also led directly to the Game Boy. As we'll recall, the main thing that had been stopping the creation of an LCD game at Nintendo that had interchangeable games that used cartridges, was the limitations of the display. 
In order to do real computer graphics, raster style graphics on an LCD, you needed a dot matrix display. The Game & Watch were using calculator style displays where you choose specific patterns that you want to show up in the LCD and you put your liquid crystal in those patterns. If you look at an old calculator in the sunlight, reflect the light a little bit, you'll notice that you can see that there are eights across the entire thing. They're not turned on, but you can see them reflected in the light. And the reason for that is that the shape of the number eight can be used to create shapes of all the other numbers. So the way those calculator screens worked is you just put your LCD in, in the pattern of those eights and then turned on specific segments in order to create the numbers. So the Game & Watch used calculator-style displays. You know, the graphics they were drawing, you know, the patterns, they could only be arranged in those specific patterns. If you're going to do something with interchangeable cartridges with multiple games, you really need a dot matrix-style display where you're talking about pixels now, really small dots, pixels, in a dot matrix instead of this calculator-style. Starting around 1984 or so, every so often Okada would go back and look at dot matrix displays again, because they existed, to see if they had come down in price enough to be viable for a game. And every time he looked, they weren't. It was just too expensive. So they were looking into this as early as 1984. They couldn't do it because the cost of the screens was just way too much. Finally, in the latter part of the decade, you had the first really practical PDAs coming out, personal digital assistants. In Japan, what that meant is you had to have a really high-definition display because the U.S. always lagged behind Japan in resolution in the early days because our Western alphabet can be rendered at fairly low resolutions and be legible. Kanji and other pictographic languages can't be. You need a higher resolution to be able to tell the difference between various kanji. So as the first PDAs were coming out from companies like Sharp and Casio, these had higher resolution dot matrix display screens because they had to display kanji. And since they were becoming popular and starting to be mass produced, this was starting to drive down the price. Now, around 1987 or so, it's starting to look like it may really actually be viable to use a dot matrix display in a game. There's also a small, at this time, handheld renaissance going on, for the same reason that handheld games continued to be popular in the early 1980s. You know, in the early 1980s, you had home video games that were starting to bring the latest arcade hits into the home, and then people really desired a home video game because they wanted to play the latest arcade hits. But video game consoles and cartridges are expensive, and that limits your market. Now the NES is popular. Everyone wants to play the latest NES games. But consoles are expensive. Cartridges are expensive. And through part of this period, there's even a worldwide chip shortage, so some of the hottest games you can't even find in stores anywhere. So once again, there's a whole underserved market that is interested in video games again, but is not necessarily able to, for one reason or another, get an NES system or get the games that they want on the NES system. And there's once again room for something cheaper to exploit that space. Konami recognizes this and starts to make a small number of handheld LCD games. 
But far more importantly, there's a little company called Tiger Electronics. Tiger Electronics? But I remember that being bad. <laughs> well, only compared to an NES game. Tiger is a hard, hard company to track down any information on. This was entirely by design. Because in the few newspaper profiles that do exist on them, the founders have said that we deliberately keep a low profile and don't want to publicize ourselves and just want our games to speak for themselves. So they were very rarely profiled. The major players are now dead. So it's hard to get much information. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, went through the trade magazines that we have access to and did his best to find what information we do have and create as complete a picture as we can of the company. I am indebted to him for a lot of what we're going to get into here. Tiger Electronics started as a division of a general electronics firm called Interstate Industries Incorporated based in Mundelein, Illinois, uh, near Chicago, I think. They noticed what was going on in video games and handheld games and thought that they would like to get involved with this. Now, there were a lot of electronics companies that wanted to get involved, a lot of electronics importers, a lot of electronics creators. A lot of them did get involved making Pong clones or this and that and the other thing. But one thing that inhibited a lot of their success is that they really had no feel for toys. Like, they knew how to do electronics, but they didn't really know how to do toys. Interstate didn't want to make the same mistake as everybody else, and so they actually went out and found people with toy backgrounds, most significantly a gentleman by the name of Roger Schiffman, and created Tiger Electronics as a subsidiary of Interstate with these toy people so that they would have the particular combination of electronics expertise and toy expertise to be successful in this field. Tiger was active throughout the first period of electronic games, the period that we already talked about, the late 70s, early 80s period. They were not the biggest player in the field, but they were a successful player in the field. They were so successful that they even branched out into console in 1982. They created Tiger Vision in order to do that. They also, in 1980, late 79, early 80, became independent of Interstate. They separated from Interstate. New president Randy Rissman came in, the other kind of key figure in the Tiger story. And they went their own way. Yes, somehow they did survive the crash. I really don't know how, especially since they entered the video game cartridge business. Obviously, they did get out of the video game thing. They started doing other electronic toys. They got into educational stuff, which I think is probably part of the reason why they survived, because this is a period of time when electronic education products were getting pretty big. So I wouldn't be surprised if that pivot helped them. They did some talking stuffed animal kind of stuff. You know, after Teddy Ruxpin was all the rage, they kind of jumped in on that. They had a talking parrot thing. They did their own version of Simon called Copycat, which I just think is hilarious. They call it Copycat because you're copying the sounds that the game makes, but it's also a copycat of Simon. So, I mean, that takes some balls to call your game Copycat. Then once the video game industry took off again, they got back into electronic handhelds. And 
the LCD technology had improved. I mean, it was still basic. It still wasn't a uh, raster-style dot matrix display. It's still more primitive animations, a little like the Game & Watch, but with a little more flexibility than something like the Game & Watch has. They know there's that market out there, that underserved market that want more and more and more Nintendo. So they dive headfirst back in with these little LCD games. They license movies. They license Nintendo games. Popular games like Castlevania, like Ninja Gaiden, also a lot of Sega's popular games like Sonic and Golden Axe and all of that. They're not the best of games. They're pretty primitive, but they had basic animations going. They had basic sounds going. They had basic kind of objectives going. If you're out and about on the go and just want a few minutes to sneak in a little bit of gameplay, they're not the worst things in the world. And, you know, if you can't afford one of these systems, then it's all you have. So yeah, are they the greatest games? No, but they're incredibly popular. They sell millions of the things. They're super successful, and I think what this does is shows that there absolutely is still a market for this kind of thing, though certainly there's got to be a way to do it in a more sophisticated style than this. Of course, that's exactly what Nintendo is working on at this time, and this is why Yokoi doesn't really deserve to be called father of the Game Boy, and why we have to tie these together. Yokoi was basically looking at just doing Tiger-style electronic games with interchangeable cartridges. He saw this new product as more of an extension of the game and watch, more of an extension of the advances that have been made in LCD games by companies like Tiger. He envisioned something with a better screen than the game and watch, something dot matrix, something you can do better graphics on and something that used interchangeable cartridges, but that was restricted to very simple types of games, games very similar to Game & Watch-style games or Tiger Electronics-style games. Because that's what Yokoi does. Yokoi keeps things simple. He likes delighting with simple pleasures. That's just how his brain works. Nothing wrong with that. But it's just that's his design philosophy. People make a big deal about his other design philosophy, about lateral thinking with withered uh, technology kind of thing. Another one of his design philosophies really is simple delights. I mean, he never codifies it that way himself. But if you look at his body of work from the ultra hand all the way through to the end, that's what he does, simple delights. Okada's like, no, 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 no. If we're going to do this, we need to make a full-fledged video game system. Look at our Famicom. Our Famicom is flying off the shelves. This is popular with people, and if we can get this into a form factor that they can take with them, this is going to be huge. And again, a lot of this is about the specific cultural mores of Japan. Not that people in other countries don't also sometimes appreciate something handheld, but in Japan, you have the small spaces, you have the limited television access, you tend to have longer commutes on trains to and from places. Because the housing is so cramped, you have a society that is very much based on going out and not staying in at home where things are very cramped and sad. So gaming on the go is something that is particularly enticing in that market. That's part of why the Game & Watch did so well. Okada's like, we got to make this more like a portable Famicom. I mean, we're not literally going to make a portable Famicom. Not going to be color. Color has too many problems. You know, we're going to keep it black and white, but, you know, this has got to be more like the Famicom. This has got to be a real game system. And Yokoi's like, no, we've got to keep it simple. 
Another bit of speculation that Okada has and that Gorge has is that the animosity between Yokoi and Uemura was also interfering in this. Because the Famicom was designed by R&D2, Uemura. If they created a portable system that was very similar to the NES, to the Famicom, it would feel like instead of R&D1 innovating, it would be R&D1 following in the shadow of Uemura. Yokoi is the more senior individual. Yokoi is always prided himself as an innovator. And the thought of following in Uemura's shadow is just absolutely repugnant to him. So he resists for a long time, and they have a pretty bad falling out over this. Okada and Yokoi's relationship is never the same after this. But in the end, Yamauchi decides that this is the way that they should go, and he endorses that way of doing things. So interestingly enough, we know exactly when the Game Boy Project started. And the reason for this is one of the designers, Yoshihiro Taki, was interviewed by Gorge, and Gorge took copious notes of all of their meetings around the project, and he kept those notes, and he shared them. So the Game Boy Project officially started, I mean, they're still debating what it's going to be at this point, they had made all the decisions by this, but it officially started on June 10th, 1987. According to Taki's notes, that's when they had the meeting where they had the green light. They still weren't sure whether they were going to go monochrome or color at that point, but they knew that this new system would use the dot matrix screen. In fact, the original code name for the system was DMG, which stood for dot matrix game. They knew that it was going to have interchangeable cartridges. They made a simple game called Tombo Tori where there were dragonflies flying around the screen and you had to use a butterfly net to catch them to test out the concept to see if they could really get the graphical elements to work. Once they were convinced that they could, they decided to start looking for a partner to manufacture the screen. At this point, they did decide during this process that they would have to go with a monochrome screen. Now, I've said a couple of times that color is a huge problem with LCDs. Now I will tell you why color is a problem. Why is color a problem? Because there is inherently no color in an LCD, because all you're doing is causing sections of the screen to be opaque or not opaque. In order to do color, you are required to have a backlight to shine onto phosphors, you know, the same way this kind of thing works on televisions or whatnot. You have to have a backlight. LCDs do not naturally have any light in them. You need a backlight for a color LCD. Backlight means expensive. Backlight means batteries drain like crazy. Backlight means no, can't do a backlight. So they can't do a color LCD screen. So of course their first go-to is Sharp, because they have a long relationship with Sharp from the Game & Watch. But Sharp's technology, and they have good technology, they're leader in the field, Sharp's technology is just too expensive. Can't do it. They go around to other companies that do LCD, and most of them either don't bother to respond or say that they have no interest. Matsushita didn't even bother to respond to them. Saiko and Hoshiden were kind of interested, but couldn't give a quote. Another company called Optilex replied, no thank you, we have no desire to work with you. Because Nintendo was still a toy company at this point. Even with the massive success of the family computer, they were a toy company. And a lot of these other companies saw themselves as doing serious work. Most of them hadn't even heard of Nintendo. They had no idea how big a player Nintendo was in anything. So they just weren't interested. 
The one company that decided to join their cause was a company called Citizen, which had been founded in 1918 as a watch and specialized in watches. So they had gotten into LCD displays through digital watches. Citizen immediately was very happy to see them. On August 6, 1987, they came down, they talked, everyone was happy. They got a price they liked. They agreed that they would use a relatively new technology called chip-on-glass, in which the driving circuit of the liquid crystal display is actually affixed directly to the surface of the screen, which saves money as there's less connectivity needed. Everyone's happy. It's going to be great. But? I hear a but here. Well, you see... Relationships are very important in Japan, and Nintendo has a long-standing relationship with Sharp. You don't just walk away from those kinds of relationships. So there was considerable pressure to see if Sharp could lower their price. This goes on for weeks. They finally get final confirmation from Sharp that they can't beat the price, and on August 28th, 1987, again, we have these dates from uh, Taki's Notes, Yokoi finally gets the okay from Yamauchi to work with Citizen. A meeting was scheduled for September the 1st in order to finalize the deal. At 2 p.m., they have this meeting. They tell Citizen they've won. Congratulations, yada, yada, yada. The meeting ends at 3. They leave the meeting, and what do they see? A delegation from Sharp making a beeline for Yamauchi's office. An hour later, Yokoi gets a summons to Yamauchi's office. It turns out that at the last second, Sharp figured out a way to get the price where it needed to be, and they are insisting on doing the screen for the DMG. Because they have this long-standing relationship, that's what holds. Even though they have a tentative agreement with Citizen. We get from the chat that this is sounding like Tetris-level shenanigans. <laughs> yes, everything around the Game Boy is complicated. Now, here's the most interesting part. They have to save face. This is Japan. You can't just walk away entirely. There has to be some face saving. So basically, they come to Citizen with two things. They say, I'm so sorry, but here's what we're going to do for you. First, we're going to do everything in our power to convince Sharp to share production of Game & Watch with them. They know that's never going to happen, but this is just to save face. Second, they promise that next year we'll come back to you with a design for a color LCD game, and we'll design that together with you. We share production on Game & Watch? That was correct. Let me clarify, but thank you for calling that out. Let me clarify. Remember that Game & Watch production continued until 1991. So the Game & Watch is still active at this time. Sharp has been making all of those because it's using their screen. The promise was, we're still making Game & Watch games. We'll get Sharp to split some of that with you. So it, it was Game & Watch. The other thing, the more interesting thing, is that they said they were going to come back in a year with a color handheld LCD for them to make. This was a complete and utter lie. They had no intention of doing this at all. It's entirely face-saving. But because saving face is so important to make it look more believable, Taki actually creates a complete fake color LCD system plan and gives it to Citizen. Even though they have no intention of ever making it. That's nuts. 
Flash forward a few years, 1990, the Game Gear comes out. Taki opens the thing up, and the layout and design looks incredibly, incredibly familiar to him. Guess who did the LCD screen on the Game Gear? Citizen? Yep. There is no evidence. There is no proof. And Citizen itself, when Taki confronted one of the people there, totally denied it. But Taki firmly believes that Citizen, upset about this whole thing where they lost the contract to Sharp, went to Sega and said, here, let's make this thing together. Not beyond the realm of possibility for corporate shenanigans. Absolutely. Anywho, they go with Sharp. They complete the design of the thing. Of course, somewhere in there, they learn about Tetris because the console version is being made. The designers of the Game Boy go absolutely nuts for Tetris when they test it, decide that they have to have it. And so one of their people recreates uh, Bulletproof Software's Tetris on the Game Boy. The name, incidentally, Game Boy, is actually completely just stolen from a magazine. The prototype was called DMG. There was a game magazine called Game Boy. They wanted something that kind of hinted at the small size of it. They wanted something that kind of hinted at the game and watch lineage. They had the name Game in it. They saw that magazine name and they stole it. That's where Game Boy comes from. Oh my, all the stealing, backstabbing, and doom. Yep. So they have all of this stuff. They have their screen. They have the technology. They have an idea of what games they're going to be doing. They bring their prototype to Yamauchi. Yamauchi tries to play it. He's not a gamer, but he always looks over stuff. The screen is impossibly hard to see. If anyone's played an original Game Boy, they know that it can be hard to get a good angle, especially in sunlight. At this time, it was even worse, because they are able to later refine the screen. You have to hold it at a pretty exact angle for it to work right. They try to explain that to Yamauchi, that if he just holds it this way or that way, he'll get a better look at it. And he's like, no, no, this is terrible. This is a disaster. We don't need this product anyway. The family computer's doing great. The public is salivating over the upcoming Super Famicom. We don't need this. Get it out of my sight. You are canceled. The Game Boy was canceled. Bye-bye, Game Boy. Nice knowing you. You died so early before you were even launched. No one loves you. Everyone was transferred off the project. It was dead. It was officially canceled. After it had been formally approved. It was formally approved on June 1st, 1988, and now it's been canceled. Yokoi and Okada are not willing to give it up. So even though almost everybody has to be taken off the project, they and one other person, Haki, I think, is the other one, continue working on it in secret to see if they can't improve the screen and get it back on track. It just so happens that they look into a new type of LCD technology. There's a side of me that wonders if they would have had the same problem if they went with a citizen screen. Probably. So the screens that they were using are what's called twist pneumatic or TN screens. That's where you have the material twisted, and then when you put the current through it, they untwist, and that's when you get the opaque thing. There was another type of LCD display first invented in 1983 called Super Twisted Pneumatic, or STN, which can be done at a higher resolution and requires less power to get a decent-looking screen. The upside of this is that it's better viewable at more angles. Still not great compared to modern LCD screens, but it's a lot better than TN screens. 
they use an STN screen and they get something that looks a lot better. They probably still would have not been able to bring the project back online, except that at this point, Super Famicom development was off the rails. We don't still have a lot of info on Super Famicom development. Nintendo people don't talk about it much because apparently it was pure hell. Hopefully Gorge will make his Volume 5 someday and we'll learn more. They had announced the thing in 1987. It wouldn't come out until 1990. They didn't mean for there to be that huge a gap between announcing and coming out. The Super Famicom was delayed. The Famicom boom peaked in 1986. The Famicom was starting to be on the decline. The Super Famicom is not going to be ready when it's supposed to be ready. So because of that delay, and because the screen is better, Yamauchi gives the green light to move forward. If the Super Famicom had just come out on time, the Game Boy may have never been reinstated, and Nintendo history would probably be very, very different today. Gary, to think of how just circumstances and people, for lack of a better terminology, whims of the CEO, can really make or break a product. Absolutely. So, as usual, we have talked way too long. (laughs) So the scope of things is going to have to change, as they often do. We were hoping to get all the way into modern handhelds, but I think it's clear that that's not going to happen. We're going to have to end Episode 2 at this point. Episode 3 will be about the epic struggle between the Game Boy and its many competitors over the next decade and how it kind of ends up squishing them all in the end. We're just going to have to see the little console that could. Next time on They Create Worlds in Two Weeks, or in 20 Minutes, whichever one you get to be present for. Possibly both. Bye-bye. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Two of three are done. Yay!